Now let's read again from verses 3 through 11 of John 13 in your New Testament. Jesus, knowing that the Father, God the Father, had given all things into his hands, and that he had come forth from God the Father and was going back to God the Father, got up from supper and laid aside his garments, his outer cloaks. Taking a towel, he girded himself. Then he poured water into the basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. So when he came to Simon Peter, who, according to one theory, was on the end of the line, so everybody else is watching Jesus do this, and when he gets to Peter finally, at least that's one scenario, he, Peter, said to him, the Lord Jesus, Lord, do you do you wash my feet? Jesus answered and said to him, What I do, you do not realize now. You don't really comprehend the deal here. But you will understand hereafter. Peter's not listening to that. He said to Jesus, Never shall you wash my feet. And you got to love the guy's heart. But he's not understanding what the deal is. Jesus answered him, If, and uh, that's maybe you will, maybe you won't. Uh, there's several different ways you can say if in the original, but this is kind of like our English if. If the Patriots win the game, we'll have to hear everybody say that Tom Brady was the greatest thing uh, that ever lived, you know, kind of thing. And he is very good. But anyway, I, I digress. Uh, Peter says, you're not going to wash my feet. Jesus says, if, maybe I will, maybe I won't. I'm not going to force this. You're going to have to let me do this for you. Interesting. If I do not wash your feet, you have no part, meros. Sharing is what Thales' translation said. Meros means a participating partner. This is really important for Christians to let Jesus wash our feet, even though we've had the bath of salvation. Simon Peter said to him, okay, if one aspirin's good, give me ten of them. You know, if washing my feet is that good, give me another bath. And Jesus says, he who has bathed, who's taken a full body bath, which all of them would have done before this Passover ceremony, this banquet, needs only to wash his feet because they put their sandals on and walk from the public bath to the banquet hall, the upper room, and they, their feet get dusty. But it's already completely clean. And then he says, all y'all, that's plural in the original, Nancy, all y'all are clean, but not all, all y'all. There's one out of the 12 that's not taken the bath of salvation. For he knew the one, Judas Iscariot, who was betraying him, who was never a believer uh, and a regenerate person. For this reason, he said, not all of y'all are clean. Last week, we started our Bible study here, Nancy, with a full intent of covering this passage, uh, John 13, 1 through 20. And I started by talking about the fact that uh, Christians today celebrate, we extol, we revere the concept of Christ-like servanthood until we're in situations where we're supposed to act like one. And that's that's the problem when the rubber meets the the road. So after I kind of said that to kind of get your your blood pressure up, we went into a long introduction to a message on Christ-like servanthood from John 13, 1 through 20. And in fact, as I've analyzed it, it was probably the longest introduction of that passage in the history of American Christianity, which means uh, we didn't quite get to the passage last week, but uh, we will move very uh, in a very linear fashion here pretty quick uh, to get to that passage. One of my very favorite passages in all of Scripture, and we'll look at it this way. We'll see an object lesson, a theological truth, and a practical principle. But first, let's pray for our teachability. And also, we have a new new uh, picture on our collage here. 
because that is Daniel and Jera Nunley. Jera is Kitty, Kitty's uh, granddaughter, and those may be to the, the two happiest members of the United States Army. <laughs> They're married. Uh, that's Keith Donnell. That is Michael Birch's brother-in-law. That's Joe McCormick's. That's Gene's uh, uh, nephew. He grew up in this church. I remember the first time he went to Puebla, he told me he was scared spitless. So I think we toughened him up for the Army. That is Cade Fleming. That is Scott Austin, who's a liaison between the Coast Guard and the U.S. Senate, but he's going to go back and start flying helicopters soon again. That is Harrison Gilbert. That's uh, uh, Carolyn Howard's good friend Greg's son, who's in the Marine Corps. That's Zach Smith. That is Sue Smith's nephew. Uh, when he was a little boy, he'd hear me on the radio, and he would tell his aunt, turn on the radio so we can hear Pasture Brad. So he's a big boy in the Army now. He's an NCO. That's Sam Stribling. That's John Christian. And that is Tom Rickert, who is an officer in the U.S. Army. And that is Ray's brother. So these aren't just clip art pictures. These are all people that we know about or know personally or some of us are related to. So we're going to start uh, praying for uh, Daniel and Jera now, Nunley, as they serve our country. So as we pray for teachability, let's pray for troops and for peace officers and firefighters because they uh, they put their lives on the line to protect things like the First Amendment, which starts by saying Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion, no state church, nor prohibiting the free exercise thereof. The battle now, they want to give us freedom of worship and not freedom of religion. That's not what the founders meant. Freedom of worship means on Sundays, if you're a Christian, or on Fridays, if you're a Muslim, or on Saturdays, if you're a Jew, you can go into your little place of worship and say whatever you want to, but don't bring it to the voting booth. Don't bring it to your job. Don't bring it to your neighborhood. That's freedom of worship. That's not what the Constitution says. It says the Congress shall not prohibit the free exercise of religion in the public square. So that's the battle we're fighting. So these terms are important. When you're hearing somebody that surprises you, they're for freedom of worship, that shouldn't surprise you. They're denying freedom of religion, which is what the Constitution gives us. It's the very first thing of the amendments. The very first amendment, first part of the amendment says that. So uh, these these people, men and women, protect us, and uh, we need to always keep that in mind. So, uh, Ron, if you would, lead us in prayer for teachability and, and troops, okay? Thank you, Ron. Abstract thought warmer upper. Three cartoons about preachers. That's the church secretary and the youth pastor chatting. And the secretary says, guess what, Jim? I got a new set of commentaries for our pastor. Sounds like you made a pretty good trade. <laughs> Thanks, James. Now, there's a pastor passing a parishioner. We don't really use that term around here, but it's a pastor on a Sunday morning passing uh, one of the guys in his church. And the guy says to the pastor, Mr. Great Service Pastor, you know it's time to leave when the church changed the morning worship time and they failed to notify you. <laughs> that is not good. And then finally, um, this is a highway patrolman, a highway state trooper who comes into the church and right in the middle of first hour teaching time and says this to the pastor. You were preaching a 45-minute sermon in a 25-minute zone, Pastor. I'm going to have to see your license and ordination. 
Now, we are looking at the life of Christ A through Z, and we, we are at a letter W, which stands for washing and wisdom. And so we're, we're getting to the very climactic, the final portion of the first advent of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these are real places, real people, real events. We can't emphasize that enough, okay? We're not talking about fairy tale time here. W takes place in Jerusalem in an upper room in the southwestern part of the city. Uh, we know exactly where that is. The building's not still standing. There is a replica that we will be able to, to see in May when we go to Israel. And then, of course, X and Y really go together, even though I want to look at X, expiatory execution. To expiate means to wipe clean. That's just a fancy word to wipe clean. Christ dies so that God can wipe clean our sin debt. And it actually took place just outside of the city of Jerusalem, outside the walls. And then Y stands for, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the resurrected issue and issuer of eternal life. And then Z, zapped from Zion. We needed a Z. It's not the ideal. Okay, Carol, come up with something better with a Z, you know. I've looked in the dictionaries. I can't find anything better. The death of Christ, the substitutionary atoning sacrifice, the literal bodily supernatural resurrection three days later, and then 40 days later, the ascension. And as Jesus talks to these guys, Scott, in the upper room, just before he's arrested on Thursday night, that's when it happens, and he knows all this is happening. This is the last time he's going to be able to be physically present with them in that sense. So he's telling them and us how we can spiritually fellowship with a physically absent Savior. That's why this passage is so important. So we're going to be looking at the first part of a very special part, subpart, of the Gospel of John. I mean, the Gospel of John does a lot of things, but you got to look at the uh, the key. Dustin, the key to this book hangs at the back door. And John says, in effect, many other things Jesus also did that are not written in this book. As he gets to the end, everything's done except for the epilogue. He says, I didn't try to tell you everything I saw, everything I know. Many other things Jesus also did which are not written in this book, but these are written, purpose-driven writing, that you might believe Jesus is the Christ. So all you got to do is believe that's his last name, and you're good, right? The Son of God, and that believing you'd have life in his name. So there's the purpose statement. Beautiful organized introduction, beautiful organized conclusion, but only three parts of the body. The seven signs. We start with water into wine. We end with the rest with this physical resuscitation. <laughs> that's Jerry Lewis speaking in tongues. That's uh, water and wine. A climax in chapter 11 with Jesus resuscitating a biologically, clinically dead Lazarus who's been dead for four days. But he gives him a second shot at physical life. He's not resurrecting him. So those are the seven signs. What does URD stand? Upper room discourse. Jesus telling Dale and Debbie and Peter, James, and John how the, the, the keys for spiritually fellowshipping with him after he's not walking around with them anymore. or He's not walking around with us in that sense. Uh, and then the ultimate sign. What's the ultimate sign in the Gospel of John? That Jesus is the issue and issuer of eternal life. What's the ultimate sign? It's the literal bodily supernatural resurrection. Muhammad can't do that for you. Joseph Smith can't do that for you. Moses can't do that for you. The risen Christ is the one you look for to receive life after death because he's gone through that tunnel, come out the other end having paid the penalty. Now the Gospel of John stresses that after the atoning work is done and just before he physically dies, he says, he shouts out something. It's one word in the original, but it's usually translated into three words in the English. 
And it's usually translated, it is finished. Now, it is finished can mean a lot of things. I mean, let's say you're losing the Super Bowl 50 to nothing, and as the clock runs out, the winning team might say, it's finished, we won the Super Bowl. On the other side of the field, the other team that's losing by 50 might say, it's, fi- it's finished. We, we got all season, got to the very last game and nothing, nothing, you know, we, uh, isn't it sad? You know, you, that's the second best football team in the world, but, you know, we cast them as losers now. And I, I get it. You always want to win all, all the games and stuff, but still. But anyway, the Greek term that John wrote down is tetelestai, and it doesn't mean it's finished. It means paid in full. They would put it on bills of sale. After you paid for somebody's donkey. So if you're walking through a village, Jason, somebody says, hey, that's Jason's donkey. You pull out the bill of sale to Telestai. It paid in full. Jesus is saying, I've made the payment for sin. Okay? I've come, and that's the first phase of it. Because a dead savior is not going to be able to save you. The re- resurrection validates the saving value of uh, this sacrifice. But the bottom line is, as we've just been singing, thank you, James, for those beautiful songs today. Not that they're, not that they're not always beautiful. You gotta cover your tracks, you know, when you're talking to musicians. But, uh, he's like Peter, he's like, John, Paul, George, Ringo, and James, just the way I think about it. You know, they're the, the five rock stars that I look forward to. But, yeah, Second Corinthians says, uh, he made him who knew no sin, who committed no sin, to be a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God through him. So, you know, the bottom line is, and this is very audacious to people. They just can't believe we dare to believe this. He's the way, the truth, and the life with a definite article. Because Jesus died for our sins and rose again, we don't have to die in our sins. Now, as you look at the Gospel of John, there are two big concepts in the Gospel of John. The need to believe in Christ and receive eternal life. The need to abide in Christ and express that eternal life. Ninety times, ninety, nine, zero, in the Gospel of John, we're told the terms for receiving the benefits of the work of Christ is to believe in Him. Active, receptive trust in Him. Uh, it's not mental assent. Full consent of the will, as many as received him. If you are willing, you can make me clean. I'm a sinner, I can't fix it, you can, and I want you to. A little child can do that. That's emphasized throughout the book. But in the upper room discourse, this concept is emphasized. And as we'll show you, the vast majority of John 13 through 17 is addressed just to believers. They're already saved. They've already been regenerated. They already have taken the bath of salvation. That's not the problem. He tells them to abide. Now, what's the difference? To believe is when unbelievers, and you can't do this without the common grace of God and the efficacious grace of God. God's doing stuff to make this possible. But believing is unbelievers recognizing and responding from the heart, not just the head, in light of our guilt and our inability to the one who can and will save because he died for your sins and rose again. It's active, receptive trust in the one who died for your sins and rose again. So it's not about rules, it's about a relationship, a connection through active receptive trust. Abiding in Christ is the number one general order for every believer, regardless of color, culture, country, generation, denomination. To abide in Christ is when believers recognize and respond from the heart to the one who has saved us. It's uh, an active dynamic where we put him in the center of our pie chart and we're doing it for him and because of him and with him, right? Now, I just realized this this week thinking about this, there's actually a parallel passage in the Old Testament, or at least the same concepts all over the place with different terminology. But let's see. Steve, look up Second uh, Hezekiah 37. Oh, you know what? That's a mistake. I meant Psalm 37, and you don't have to look it up. You don't have to look it up. 
I was thinking, who, is, who am I going to pull that on? And I thought, you know, if they actually buy it, it's going to be very embarrassing if they don't know this is not a second Hezekiah. When I first went to Dallas Seminary, we got a thousand guys in the program, 250 in each of the four years. And, you know, I'd never been to Bible college. I just went to regular secular stuff. And, uh, you got a chapel every day. And I thought, man, if they say we're going to preach from Obadiah, it'll take me like 10 minutes to find it, you know? And I, I, so I never forgot the, Fear of not being able to find stuff. But use the table of contents if you need it around here. Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. That's what abiding in Christ is. It's delighting in the Lord. Not because you're not sure you're saved. You're trying to keep your salvation or you want to show somebody you're saved. It's because he has saved you. He's your Lord, your Savior, your best friend. He's your Messiah. He's everything. Put him in the center of your chart. Do it because of him. If nobody notices, it doesn't matter. If they do, it's nice. Who cares? You know? Commit your way to him. Get him in the center of your pie chart. Focus on him. Be relating to him personally. It's a personal relationship. Of course, you'll obey the rules, but it's, it's why. Now, I hear people on TV saying, you know, delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart, which means big money, big houses, yachts, whatever you want. Is that what that means? How do I know? Look at the next verse. Oh, one thing you remember from me is the answer is in the next verse or maybe the next verse after that. Look what he's going to give you if you abide in him. Rich and famous? Maybe, but probably not. He's going to bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice. You're actually going to be thinking in divine categories. And that's always a good thing, right? So let's go to the upper room. It's almost as if the world is locked out after Judas leaves in 1330. Although I realize we're washing the feet before he's he leaves. Now, again, Scott, look, as Jesus teaches this, this is Thursday night, April 2nd, 33 A.D., if Harold Honer's Cambridge dissertation is correct about the dating. So he's 15 hours away from the crucifixion starting at 9 o'clock the next morning. And he's actually excited, Luke 22 says, about spending this time with these guys, knowing he's about to be arrested, brutalized, and crucified. You, you couldn't make that up, right? Upper room discourse looks like this. We looked at the precept. And the prayer last time, now let's look at the pattern. Hey, we actually got to our passage. It's a great thing. I'm so happy. Let's look at uh, 13, 1 through 20 this morning. And realize he's giving us here a pattern for fellowship. The Lord washes his disciples' feet. Because that's what abiding in Christ looks like. That's what fellowship with God for a believer looks like. You're a servant, not a supervisor. You're a contributor, not a critic, right? Christianity is not a spectator sport, okay? It's a participant sport. Wow, you guys look convicted already. I'm, I'm really off to a great start here. Let's read verses 1 through 7, the object lesson. Now, before the feast of the Passover, they were going to celebrate right there in that room. Jesus, knowing that his hour, this period of Gethsemane, get arrested, get brutalized, get thrown down into a hole. We're going to see that hole. They threw him at the house of Caiaphas in May. Have the kangaroo trials be scourged to with an inch of his life, then nailed to a cross. He knows that's about to happen, that he depart out of this world and go back to the Father. He loved his own. He didn't stop loving them. He loved them to the end, even the extent of starting by washing their dirty feet. There's nobody in the Christian church, including Billy Graham, and he's no longer with us. He's in heaven now, but is overqualified to be a servant. During supper, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him. Let's stop there. That doesn't mean he made him do anything. It just means Satan 
motivated him, and he was fully on deck to do that. Here's the thing. The world, the flesh, and the devil may load the gun of temptation, but we always pull the trigger, and he's pulled the trigger. Okay, he's all in, in part because he had unrealistic expectations. If you have unfulfilled expectations, you're going to feel hurt. You nurture hurt, you're going to get angry. You nurture anger, you're going to get bitter. You play with that, you'll hate. You may even forget why you hate somebody or something, but you know you got good reason because you had unfulfilled expectations. But if you have unrealistic expectations, you're going to live a very stinted Christian life, stunted Christian life doing it that way. This guy thought, just like the other guys did too, but he was all in, he thought Jesus was going to take over the government and that Judas would kind of become like a, a cabinet member. And it was obvious that wasn't going to happen. He could read the tea leaves better than the other 11. They're still thinking at this date that Jesus is going to take over the government tomorrow. They don't, they don't get it. But anyway, Judas is all set to do his thing. But he's still in the room. He doesn't leave until verse 30 of this chapter. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and then he had come forth from God the Father, and was going back to the Father, got up from the supper, laid aside his garments, and taking a towel, girded himself. See, we don't want towels. We want thrones. We want to tell people what to do. We want to criticize people. We want to second-guess people. We don't want to put a towel on and wipe people's feet. But that is the job description of true biblical discipleship, and you can actually do it with a good attitude if you're abiding in Christ. If you're not abiding in Christ, you either won't do it or you'll have a crummy attitude. It's just here. It's the most important dynamic you're going to get about spirituality is Jesus telling you what spirituality looks like in this passage, and here he's modeling it for us. So he pours water into the basin, began to wash the disciples' feet. They'd already taken a bath in a public bath, kind of like the Simmons Center, a shallow swimming pool. I know that sounds disgusting. They didn't have hot and cold water in their hotel rooms, okay? They're probably bivouacking out in, the, sea, out in the, the Mount of Olives. You know, you just would do a public bath. They, they were used to it. Just same-sex baths so you weren't you know, doing anything weird. Uh, they get all cleaned up, walk to the upper room, get their feet dirty. That's the status quo. Typically, you'd have a slave uh, wash the feet. Uh, they didn't have that. They're all playing, I think, we can ask them in heaven, Mike. They've all been playing spiritual chicken for the last 30 minutes. Who's going to actually get up and wash our feet? But it's not, Peter's saying, it's not going to be me. Maybe Andrew can do it. Andrew's saying, it's not going to be me. Maybe it could be James. I know, let's make Simon Simon the Zealot. Maybe Nobody's doing it. It's, everybody's thinking, yeah, we're, we're eating with dirty feet. We're not supposed to do that. So Jesus gets up, washes their feet. When he came to Simon... Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, you're going to wash my feet? It's not right. This is the lowest slave's job. Uh, I, you're the chief. I'm the Indian. And so you got to like his theology there. Jesus said, what I do, you don't realize, you don't comprehend now, but you're going to understand hereafter. Look again at verse uh, 6. He came to Simon Peter. What do you remember about Simon Peter as a title for this guy? What's his, what's his real name? Simon or Peter? Yeah, Simon's his name. Peter's a nickname. Where did he get nickname? The nickname. Jesus liked to kid around and give people nicknames, okay? Uh, take it from me. You can get in trouble giving people nicknames. <laughs> uh, some people are Michael. Don't call me Mike. You know, some people are, uh, whatever. Don't, I've got, I've got a student this semester. I guess I can't use the name, but you know, you call their names the first day and, and that's their legal name, though they're registered. It's what's on their driver's license. It's what the record at Cameron says. And you'll generally get somebody to say, don't call me, don't call me Joan, call me Darlene. It's like, you know, like, okay, okay, I write that down with a big marker. Don't call her Joan, you know, sets her off, you know. Uh, go to chapter one of John. Look at uh, verse 29. My name is Brad. 
My middle name is Lee, and my last name is McCoy. Now, a lot of people are named Bradley, like one word. So a lot of times you say it fast. They'll say, "What's your?" when they need your legal name, I'll say I'm Bradley, Bradley McCoy. Uh, I remember, I don't know why I remember stuff like this, but when I finished my driver's ed thing, one of our coaches was our driver's instructor, and he wasn't very smart. I'm not saying coaches aren't smart. I had some smart coaches. I can't remember any, but I'm sure we probably did. But anyway, uh, I'm kidding. My brother-in-law's a coach, uh, which, no, um, <laughs> Andrew Lee played quarterback for high, for the Needleland Bulldogs in high school. But anyway, uh, when I finished my driver's ed thing, we're still in the car, and he's filling out the form we need to show to the insurance they can save money. He said, hey, what's your, what's your legal name, Brad? What's your full legal name? I said, Bradley McCoy. He said, okay. Now, what, but what's your what's your middle name? And I thought I, I didn't. I said Lee. He said okay. Read it up. He says that's weird. Your name is Bradley Lee McCoy. <laughs> I said oh man, you're gonna have to sign that, fill that again, man. They're gonna think I'm a different person. But anyway, look at uh, John one. Yeah, we're going from the very end phase of the ministry to the very beginning. Jesus has been baptized, tempted, comes back to where John the Baptist is doing his thing, and we read this. Uh, John 1, 29, man, I love this passage. The next day, he, this is John the Baptist, is the he there, saw Jesus coming to him, and he says, that's the Lamb of God. That's the guy I baptized. That's the Messiah. He's going to take away the sin of the world. Notice he's not saying the lion is going to take over the government. He understands the deal. You know, the lamb first, lion second. Uh, drop, drop down to verse uh, 33. And I didn't recognize him through experience, but he who sent me to baptize said, the one whom the Spirit will descend. This is all happening after the baptism, obviously, but some people don't notice that and think it's a problem. Verse 35. Look at verse 35. Again, the next day after that, John, the baptizing Jew, Jewish prophet, was standing with two of his disciples. Almost certainly John, the apostle, and Andrew, two of John's disciples who hoping that he'd point him to the Messiah, and he's doing that. You see, Jesus walked by, he says, that's the Lamb of God, that's the Messiah, there he is again. And the two disciples, Andrew and another one, I think it's the Apostle John, heard him, they followed Jesus, literally just followed after him. And Jesus, with a big smile on his face, said, what are you looking for, guys? What do you see? And they said, where are you staying? Can we sit down and chat? We want to get to know you, I want to check you out. He said, come, you'll see. And they stayed, you know, several hours. One of the two who heard this, Heard John say, that's the Lamb of God, and followed Jesus that day, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. The other one's not mentioned because John doesn't like to brag about him being an eyewitness, but he was there. I'm almost certain we can ask him in heaven. But watch this. After Andrew and the other disciple of John the Baptist now have met and embraced Jesus, the first thing he does, Andrew, is get his brother, who's also there in that vicinity right then. He says, he goes to his own brother, whose name's Simon. That's a Hebrew word that means listener. And we all know that's not really a good label for Peter at that point in his life. And Andrew says to Peter, or to Simon, I should say, we have found the Messiah, which, be, which is Hebrew, which put into Greek is the Christ. That's not his last name. It's one of his most important titles. It means the one who's going to come and take care of the sin problem. The one prophesied as early as Genesis 3, named as the Son of God in Psalm 2 and described in great detail as the Lamb of God in Isaiah 53. So he's saying, we found him. And they didn't really found him. He kind of found them, but really John the Baptist pointed them. And it goes on from there. But my point is, go back to John 13. Um, 
Simon Peter got the Peter part, which means rocky, rough around the edges, from the Lord Jesus. It was a term of endearment, but encouragement, right? I love that. Now, got good news for you, angel. You're not going to see this anywhere else. Um, just last week, in Jerusalem, archaeologists found an ancient photograph done by Matthew Brady the first. It's a little fuzzy, but this is showing Jesus washing their feet. Actually, that's uh, Mormon. That's a Mormon photo on their uh, on their uh, site, and I show you that because it's wrong. I mean, the washing the feet's right. They didn't sit at tables like that. They reclined banquet tables back then for Jews involved laying on your left side. They're assuming everybody's right-handed. Now, I'm sure the 9% of people who are left-handed felt very excluded and, and stuff like that. But you know what people back then said? Get over it. Just be glad you got some food, you know. But according to uh, a lot of folks who kind of analyze this, nobody knows. But we do know that when you sit around a table like that, it's called a triclinium. It's got three sides, and the, and the food is served from that side. And maybe we should do that, some fellowship. There's some night. But the uh, the person who's kind of in charge that day would be there. Jesus, the guest of honor, would be there. The one honored by the guest of honor would be there. That's where Judas is, because he hands him the sop, and John leans against his breast to say, hey, what are you talking about? Watch this. The guy give the best piece of meat. He's the guy's going to do it. And then we're assuming Peter was over here because he's making signals to John. Now, don't take that to the bank. I'm not going to pound the pulpit on that. Okay? I'm not going to swear on that. But that makes a lot of sense based on what we know. John's there. He leans on Jesus and says, who are you talking about? That's Jesus. Everybody can hear him. That's Judas who, by intention that day, Jesus made sure he was the guest of honor in that slot. So he's not going to have to wash feet. And Peter's over here doing his thing. So if that's true, and it doesn't matter, but I thought I'd share that with you. No extra charge. Uh, as he goes around, the last guy who's going to wash his feet will be Peter there. And so Peter, at the end of the train, I think everybody else uh, would have been happy to wash Jesus' feet, but the problem is they don't want to wash anybody else's. That's why they don't object. And I'm sure they all feel uncomfortable except for Judas with Jesus washing their feet. But Peter, you know, he kind of shoots first and, and asks questions later. So he asks the question, and Jesus says, hey, look, uh, you're going to have to give me this, the benefit of the doubt. Have you ever heard me say that? You're never going to have enough information to legitimately second-guess God. So you've got to learn to kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. It's called faith, okay? And I know it's not easy. There's things that happen in my life that's hard to trust him on, too, but... Uh, that's kind of what the kids have to do with the parents. You know, when you have good parents, we've got a great heavenly father. Let's go from the object lesson to the theological truth. Verse 8. Peter said to him, they're having this interaction about foot washing. Bottom line, you're not going to wash my feet over and out. Uh, because you outrank me. You're my Lord and Savior. I'm not going to let you wash my feet. He's doing it, saying that for the right reasons, but doesn't understand the significance of this this example, never shall you wash my feet. And Jesus says, this is third class, maybe you will, maybe maybe you won't. If I don't wash your feet, and I'm not going to force you, you have no meros, no participating partnership with me. Okay. So Simon Peter, like any good male, would say, you know, if one pill is good for me, five has got to be five times as good, and ten be ten times as good. If uh, washing my feet is that big of a deal for you, Lord, give me a whole, another bath now. Now, he'd had a bath 30 minutes before. He doesn't need a bath. 
He does need to get his feet washed. And so Jesus says, the one who has bathed his whole body only needs to wash his feet after they go from the bath, walk on the dusty streets, go to the upper room. But it's already completely clean. And you guys are all clean. That's plural. You, plural, second person plural, but not all of you, for he knew the one who was betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all of you are clean. Okay. So this is deep theology, but you can summarize it real easy. Okay, Abby, a full bath is not the same thing as having your feet washed. That's how hard that is. Okay. He's talking about salvation and then cleansing in the spiritual life. The one who's taken a bath, they literally had taken a bath before they went to the banquet, but he's talking about the bath of salvation. Doesn't need to wash a whole body again, just his feet, because he's already clean from the ankles up, right? Now, you could take a bath again, but you don't really need to. Now, i got some exciting news for you here. I found out about a brand-new Bible translation that you probably haven't heard, because we're going to use uh, this translation to show you what the second part of verse 10 means. And it's called the AOV. Have anybody heard, any of you heard about the AOV? Sydney, you heard about the AOV? It's brand new. It's the authorized Oki version. <laughs> and I've kind of already given it away, but the Lord, if we want to translate this into Oki, He's saying, all y'all, you know, you got y'all is singular, all y'all is plural, right? All y'all are clean, but not all y'all. So how are we going to figure out what that means? Anybody got a commentary? Oh, I've got this thing. I've got this app where some guy's going to tell me what everything means. Let's go to the next verse. You know, let's at least start looking at the next verse. And then if you need help, you know, call James. He can tell you what it means. Look at the next verse. Look at verse 11. Why is he saying not all of them are clean? They've all taken a physical bath. That's not a problem. He's talking about the spiritual bath salvation. For Jesus knew the one, one out of 12, who was never a regenerate believer, who didn't want that, who didn't need that. You know, in his mind, who's betraying him. For this reason, he said, not all y'all are clean. All y'all are, but not all y'all, because one exception, right? Verse 11, boom. Now, let's talk about the, the two different types of, salva- of forgiveness, I should say. You'd be surprised how many Christians don't get this. And one week they hear a message on Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so has he removed my transgressions from me. That's, that's, is that awesome? How far is the east from the west, by the way? In light years. Infinity. There's no connection anymore. Okay? Is that good news, Janice? That's the way God thinks about you on your worst day as a Christian? This had to be all of grace. It had to be based totally on the merits of Christ for you to have that kind of status. Um, well, I'd never work. That's why it's so hard to believe. It's not easy to believe this. Unless God's doing some stuff, you're not going to see and believe it. But yeah, uh, so one week you hear Psalm 103. Then the next week you go to church and you hear... John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just forgives our sins. Whoops. Or you read the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, uh, forgive our sins if we forgive those who have forgiven or sinned against us. And then he says, if you don't forgive others, your prayers are going to bounce off the ceiling. You can't have fellowship with me and hold grudges. In light of all, I've forgiven you. So what do you do with that, Lori? I mean, one week you're told sins are infinity away from you, and now we're told we've got to confess them. Watch this, two different kinds of uh, forgiveness illustrated by the bath of salvation and the washing of the feet. So there's a deep theology here, but he's going beyond that to show you that fellowship's all about service, too. Uh, this is from the MacArthur Study Bible. Now, you know, good, I, I like the Rivers Study Bible. That's my weapon of choice. 
But really, these study Bibles are great because they, they got the text and they got some cross-references. Then you have a line. Everything under the line is not Scripture. It's John MacArthur or Charles Ryrie's or somebody's ideas to try to help you. You can disagree with some of the stuff under the line. Uh, I knew Dr. Ryrie personally. Uh, he will not remember me even in heaven. I'm gonna, it's going to take me a long time to explain who I am. He won't remember who I am. But uh, I'm not that important. But, yeah, um, I don't agree with everything in his study Bible. Okay, Occasionally, he, he, he and I could, it's maybe me that's wrong. But that's the difference. But here's one of the footnotes in the MacArthur Study Bible, which is really quite a good one. Um, needs only to wash his feet. Already taking the bath. The cleansing that Christ does at salvation, the bath of salvation, never needs to be repeated as far as the east is from the west. Atonement is complete at that point. It's put to your account. But all who have been cleansed by God's gracious justification, moment of saving faith, need constant washing in the experiential, in the real practical living life after you get saved sense, as they battle sin in the flesh. That's why we have verses like walk in the spirit, you won't carry out the desires of your sin nature, because you've got a sin nature and you can do that. And we all leak some oil. Believers are justified and granted imputed legal righteousness east as west, but still need sanctification and personal righteousness and forgiveness. So let's say the cleansing that Christ does at salvation gives us the bath. As we live our lives, we continue to need foot washing. Notice you drop the G. So we have two different kinds of salvation. We have what I would call salvation or legal or judicial forgiveness. It's the bath of salvation given by God as the righteous divine judge based on the work of Christ. It... Uh, is once for all not repeated as far as the east is from the west. I knew I had Psalm 103 up there, right, somewhere. I like Ephesians, just real quick. Look at Ephesians 1 to 7. There's a lot of verses. I think the best one is Psalm 103, but we've already talked about that. So let's look at something slightly different in the New Testament. It's all good. God's Electric Power Company, Galatians, Ephesians. Yeah, look at Psalm 1, Ephesians 1. you got to love Ephesians, don't you? Um, 1 7, in him. If that's your standing, you've trusted Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, Calvin said. And he was right on that one. In him we have redemption through his blood, his bloody, violent substitution sacrifice on the cross. We have the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. That's just a fact. That's a legal reality. That's the way God sees us. That's your standing. That will never change on your first day, last day, worst day as a Christian. Uh, that's salvation one. That's the big Let's say a capital F forgiveness. Maybe a lowercase f. I call it family forgiveness, fellowship forgiveness, Christian life forgiveness. That's what we're seeing in the foot washing here. That's what David needs after his uh, long period of carnality with Bathsheba and other people. It's given by God based on the work of Christ, but it's something that's repeated. And look at 1 John 1.8. Not the gospel of John, the, the big gospel, but look at the first letter. He writes three letters. The first one's five chapters, two and three are just one chapter, they're short. And they're right toward the back of the New Testament. So forgive us sometimes, sometimes probably James and I forget to distinguish between 1 John and John the Gospel, and you go to the wrong one, or maybe I do that. But look at uh, one of the first, he's talking about fellowship with, with the God for believers, if you read the introduction, but look at verse 8 of chapter 1. 1 John, back of the Bible. If you bump into Third John, you've gone two books too far. You with me? Watch this. Now let's read uh, a couple of verses here and talk about it. 
If we, that's he's including himself there. He doesn't say if you. I don't do this. I don't sin anymore. I'm a Christian. He's an apostle. If we, he's, he's saying I do this too. If we say we have no sin, that's singular on purpose, we're deceiving ourselves. The truth's not in us in saying we have no sin. If we confess our sins, you know, confess and jettison them and, and get back on the wagon where we fell off, he's faithful and cleanses us to forgive us our sins. He's going to wash our feet. We'll be back in fellowship with him. Cleanses us from all kinds of unrighteousness. Then he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. Now, why would he repeat himself in verse 8? If we say we have no sin, that's not good. Verse 10, we say we have not sinned, that's not good. Not the same thing. When he says, if we say we have no sin, that means if we say we don't have a sin nature anymore, we can't sin. Oh, we make mistakes. All those sins of omission, they're not sins, they're just mistakes, you know. Holding the grudges, well, she deserves it. You know, people will rationalize all kinds of great stuff. But that's talking about the capacity. If you think because you went to Dallas Seminary or because you go to a Bible-believing church or whatever, we're not capable of sinning anymore, you're kidding yourself. You are capable of sinning. If either one of those teams goes in Super Bowl and thinks we can't lose, they're in trouble, aren't they? That happens almost every year, especially in college football. Much better teams lose to lesser teams because they go into the week. The better, better team thinks we just got to show up and put the pads on and we're going to win. So because they don't think they can lose, they don't make the effort they need to be successful in that particular game. So that's that's the problem there. In verse 10, he's not saying the same thing. He's saying not if you say you can't sin. He's saying, well, I can sin. I just don't anymore. See? There's both pride. There's a lot of pride in both of those, but they're different. If we say we have not sinned. Oh, yeah, we can't. Well, I could sin, but I never do. We're making him a liar. We need constant humility to realize uh, we can pull that trigger on that temptation anytime, but when we do so, rather than rationalizing them, redefining them, hoping God doesn't know or hoping nobody else finds out so we'll have to deal with it, we're supposed to confess. Homo legeo, say the same thing about them that God does with the intent of throwing them over your back shoulder. Does that mean if you struggle with a sin, you can't be really saved? Heck no, we all have weaknesses. And some of us have slightly less gross weaknesses than others, at least when there are witnesses around. But we all have our tendencies, you know. My tendency is to be sarcastic, especially with those. The closer you get to me, the more sarcastic I'm going to get. Just warning you, okay? And I think I do it because my it worked on me. When my dad was sarcastic, I always responded. So I, I think I've got a pragmatic reason, but it's not a good excuse. It's my tendency. i got to watch it. Uh, you do this with snowflake college students, and it's a problem. Because you're really trying to help them. And they go, oh, nobody's ever talked to me like that. And nobody said that, but uh, I'm, I'm sure some of them feel that way. And that's my problem. Um, I've been, I've really been convicted about that recently. I was watching Rob, Robbie Zacharias talk about, I sent the elders a, a video of a real short uh, response he gave to a particular major issue today. I'm going to show that on a Wednesday night some night. And he gave a great answer and he was so kind and humble about it. And I thought, man, that's the way I feel like when I'm being sarcastic, but I'm not doing it, you know? So I'm very tempted by, uh, um, convicted by that. But now watch this. So he's talking about the fact we can sin and we do sin in the Christian life. Get over it. Don't do it, but process it with God first and then deal with the collateral damage. But he says in chapter 2, verse 1, and there really shouldn't be a chapter break there. That's unfortunate. My little children, he's talking to Christians here. I'm writing these things to you so you won't sin. I'm not trying to encourage you to sin by saying you can and you will. But, if anyone sins, we have an advocate. Paraclete means defense attorney. You know who your defense attorney is, Janice, on your worst day? Your Savior. 
Okay? He doesn't love you any less when you don't act like him, but boy, you're really messing up the system. So stop, okay? Try to get with the program here. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Okay, go back to John 13. Man, I love this passage. I like them all, but man, some of these are just incredible. So much truth here. So we've seen what? The object lesson? What was the object lesson? What did Jesus do to show servanthood, fellowship, is not making you a better complainer, but a better contributor, washing their feet. And none of the other guys wanted to do that. Uh, theological truth, you, the bath of salvation makes you good legally, but you're going to walk around, you're going to need Jesus to wash your feet by confessing your sins, right? And then practical principle, and it has two parts here. First verses 12 through 15, the Lord explains the ongoing practicality of washing feet as an example of service, a specific thing that shows you Fellowship with God involves service, contributing, uh, not being a spectator. So when he had washed their feet and taken his garments and reclined at the table, he said, Do you know what I've done for you? Among many other things, one thing I've done for you is, You're right, I do outrank you. I am the Lord. I'm the Creator. I'm the issue of eternal life. You call me teacher and Lord. You're right. I do outrank you. If then I, the Lord, and the teacher, washed your feet, the lowest form of service, you ought to wash one another's feet and not just physically wash people's feet. That didn't come up today that much in our culture. Back then, they didn't wear socks. Back then, they didn't have uh, running water in their houses, Connie, so it was a problem. Uh, for I gave you an example that you should do as I do to you. Now, some Christians read that and think, well, that's a third ordinance. We've got baptism, we've got Lord's Supper, and we've got foot washing. And if folks do that with that intent, God bless them. But I don't think that's what he means here. I don't think he's trying to give us another ordinance. I think he's saying this is a specific act that's a general example for all kinds of things. The reason that Ray has been our nursery coordinator for years and never got mad and quit and never called Pastor Brad and said, why'd you make me do this? And never, you know, blame the church for hating her because they gave her a job where sometimes people don't show up or forget stuff because she's doing it for the right reasons, you know? So when you're jugging the balls, you look like that, that swan, you know, when you watch the swan look so graceful, but you have an underwater camera, that swan is working like mad to look graceful. Just like being a great ballet dancer. You see the final performance. You don't know how hard they've worked to get there, right? So that's that. Uh, yeah, I love that. Uh, nobody is overqualified for a lifestyle of servant uh, servanthood if you understand anything about the, our job description as Christians. Now look at verses 16 through 20. Truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If I did it, you guys ought to be doing it. And don't whine about it. Just in, embrace it, man. You can actually enjoy this. I know one who is sent greater than one who sent him. Then he says, if you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Just so I can have a little bit extra time to say what I want to say. I'm not going to read the rest of it. I'm not hiding from it. It's all good. In verse 20, he's saying, hey, cheer up. It's going to be tough. But you're going to get to represent me in a special way, the apostles. But let's focus on verse 17. I love this. Look at this. If you know these things, you will, you are blessed. You will be blessed if you do them. Now, you know, we sometimes will say, well, this is a first class condition in the Greek, Debbie, which means so, so and so. And they're saying, why is he saying that? He's trying to show off? No, we're not trying to show off. Here's the thing. Uh, when, when we say if in English, it usually means if it happens, it could and might not. If, um, if, if the Patriots lose the Super Bowl, I will be happy. There's a difference between happiness and joy. Happiness is pleasant feelings based on pleasant circumstances. Uh, for whatever reasons, I'm not a great Patriot fan. I, I'm, I like real Patriots, but not the pa- football team. So, and I don't think they're going to lose. I'm not a betting man on sports because you can't make money that way. It's blackjack what you want to do. But uh, no. 
I'm not betting on sports. I'm not betting on that game. I got no skin in the game except I will watch the last half of it. Don't watch the first half. It's a waste of time. But uh, if the Patriots lose, I'll be happy for about five minutes. That's the way we use the word if as a contingency. But you can actually spell that word translated if a couple different ways and use some other syntactical things to show you whether you mean if and something's true, which we would usually say since, and that's called first class. If and something's true, then it's going to happen. Uh, if you've listened well to the lecture tonight, the quiz I'm going to give you at the end of it on Tuesday nights at Reward Religion won't be a problem. You know, I'm saying if you have and you do, you do, you know, not if maybe you maybe you won't kind of thing. So anyway, look at verse 17. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. We got two ifs, and in the and they look the same in English, but in in the New Testament Greek, the first if there, Jack says if. And you do know these things. He knows they know those things. He knows they know he washed his feet because he just washed their feet and they saw it. There's no doubt about that. Since you know these things. And by the way, do you want to be blessed in your spiritual life? Anybody here want to be blessed spiritually in their life, Christian life? Nobody does. Okay, well, we just, that's fine. We're closing prayer. Yeah, it's fine with me. Uh, I've got a lunch date today with Danny Ogo. So, you know, we got to go to Sam Southern Eatery before the Southern Baptists get there. So, which is impossible. But since you know these things, first class condition in the Greek, you'll be blessed if, that's third class, maybe you will, maybe you won't. That's the way we use it. That's why this stuff is important. He's not saying, if you if you know these things, I don't know if you know them or not. He knows good and well he know, they know them because he's omniscient, number one. Number two, he just did it. They all know he just washed his feet as an example of how you should think about your Christian life. It's not about how much you control, it's how much you contribute, Right? You'll be blessed. Everybody wants to be blessed spiritually. Now, if you're thinking that means big money, big big cars and stuff like that, we're not talking about that. We're talking about justice and righteousness and fruit of the Spirit and stuff like that. Uh, you'll be blessed if, and maybe you will, maybe you won't. He's not going to make you do it if you do them. Uh, wow. That sounds familiar. If you know these things, are going to be blessed if you do them. It's not merely an awareness. Let's call that gnosis of information that Jesus said we ought to be willing to wash people's feet. Feet, the feet. Uh, in the Greek, they put the S. No, they don't. They don't really don't. Uh, as metaphorical, not just physically doing that necessarily. It doesn't come up that much, but anything. Taking the dirty diapers out of the hamper in the nursery, stuff like that. That's kind of like washing feet. But it's not just information. It's transformation of character. POV means point of view. And priorities based on not gnosis, but epinosis. Way back in Second Peter, look at Second Peter. We did that, man, almost a year ago. Look at Second Peter, verse one or chapter one, verse two. I think we talked about the difference between gnosis and epinosis. Gnosis is awareness of information. Epinosis is information embraced as truth, and so you're going to base your priorities and choices based on that truth. Gnosis is like knowing about flying from riding in an airplane or reading a book about flying. Epinosis is actually flying a plane, knowing about flying a plane, Lendo, because you've flown a plane. I've never flown a plane, uh, really. I steered one when my dad was actually flying one. Uh, gnosis is biblical consciousness, biblical information. Epinosis is biblical convictions. That's what we're praying the kids uh, Wednesday night. Will, they're getting lots of information. We're praying it becomes convictions, but we can't do that for them. Gnosis is the head. Epinosis is the heart, not the pump that pushes the blood around. 
You know, when you read, the Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit, and is a critic of the thoughts and intents of the heart. We're not talking about that. You learn about the heart at school. It's an important part. It's the most important muscle you got is your heart, right? We're talking about this. We're talking about the mind and the will. What does Hebrews say the heart is in that sense? The thoughts, that's your mind. And what else? The thoughts and the what? That's your will, okay? Epinosis is you embracing truth, information as truth, okay? That's full heart information or knowledge, we should say. If it's just the mind as gnosis, if it's full intent of the will, it becomes epinosis. It's facts as opposed to truth, information as opposed to inspiration, consciousness as opposed to convictions, gnosis, epinosis. So go back to 13, John 13. This is what the Lord is saying. If you're aware of these things, that's nice. That's kind of a necessary first step. But you're going to be blessed if you actually live them out, right? If you do them, if you live them out. Okay, you can give a great presentation of servanthood and be anything less than a servant. So let's take this to heart. How do you tend to react? And even if you kind of jump through the hoops for people because you don't want to look like a three-year-old, how do you think? What are you thinking when people at home, at work, at school? How's your teacher this year at homeschool? Pretty good? She's a pretty good teacher, isn't she? Yeah. At least that's the party line, right? Um, I've, I've, heard it's, I've heard it's all good. Uh, and at church, how do you react when people expect you to, to be a servant? Well, how dare they, you know? think I should do that. Uh, how do you overcome that? You abide in Christ. You think about the cross. You think about him washing feet. And say, yeah, somebody needs to take garbage out. I can do that. Why not? It's a joy. It's a joy to take the garbage out. If you've got the right attitude. If not, how dare they even ask me? Let's go to a bigger church where they pay people to do stuff like that. Okay, that could work. But it might actually slow you down in the process. Yeah. How are we going to be salt and light in this world? We're going to live Christ-like servanthood. So that everything we're a part of is better. Not just our Sunday school class, not just pray and share, and that's important. I want you to be make that better all the time, right? It's all about what can I do for others in and through Jesus as opposed to what's everybody else doing for me, right? That's the key. So I'm going to challenge you as we close in prayer. Think of one area. Hey, Henry, it's hard for me to believe you're anything less than ideal already, but maybe, just maybe. And if you can't think of anything, I bet your mom can tell you something. Think of one way you could be a better servant at home. And not doing it because I'm putting some pressure on you because mom's going to, you know, take away your ice cream break or something. But because as a believer, you embrace a an ethic of servanthood, Christ-like servanthood. And when you want to get a crummy attitude, just think of him washing feet. And more importantly, think of him on the cross. And it's hard to kind of feel sorry for yourself when you're picturing those kind of things. When you feel sorry for yourself, you're not thinking those, you're not thinking like Christian. You're thinking, using your id Instead of your true identity in Christ. Uh, at work. Well, the boss doesn't appreciate me. This is totally a secular job. There's making money for the man. Hey, your job is do the best you can and actually get better. And you know what? Even if they don't appreciate you, you can respect yourself. You look in the mirror and you feel, you, you know, you act like a slob. You're going to feel like a slob. And no amount of medication is going to help on that. Okay. I know it's more complicated than that, but quite often, you know, people feel like slobs because they're living a sloppy Christian life. So, of course, they don't respect themselves. How about at school? Uh, it's too late for me to tell Dustin. Dustin was pretty much the ideal student. Now, the first time I saw him, he had a big mohawk, 
uh, walked in there, kind of glared at me. He's got to get the kind of, no, I'm kidding. He didn't glare at me. He was there early, but I thought, oh, this will be interesting. Okay, great. You know, cause I always wanted to wear my hair like that. And I tried it once and that's when I was gone for six months. Uh, you may remember that. Um, and at church, uh, there should be no job that's uh, too uh, menial for any of us to do, including, now, of course, me and James, we get paid to be good, so we expect us to do that. But, I mean, the real Christians, you know, not the professional ones. If you don't know where to start, we've got a list of people that kind of catalyze ministry around here. Just walk up and say, how can I serve you? You know, uh, I want to live a totally sold-out life for the Lord Jesus Christ, and I have... Uh, Every other Tuesday between 2.15 and 2.45 when I can serve that, serve him. So let me know what you've got every other Tuesday. See, if you're doing that, we're not quite saying the same thing, right? Okay. I finished the passage. I actually, mission accomplished, okay? You're welcome. Okay, let's have a word of prayer. Father, such an incredible amount of truth in this passage, Lord. Thank you, Father, for uh, the fact Jesus did all this. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Lord. Uh, for doing this for us. Thank you for inspiring John to write it. Thank you for preserving the text. Thank you for giving us a great English translation. Thank you for illumining it for us today. And now we're all very convicted because I think everybody in this room, starting with me, can be a better servant, have a better attitude, and actually look forward to the challenge and the joy of following this example our Lord and Savior gives us. And so please eliminate excuses, rationalizations, redefinitions, and charge us up to embrace uh, this challenge to be Christ-like servants who are abiding in him. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.